19 in your Bible, if you brought your Bible with you. If you didn't, we have some in the back that we can share and would love to put a copy of God's Word in your hand. 1 Kings 19, and uh, there's a little note page in your bulletin would ask you to grab that as well because that'll be of some help, give us a little structure along the way. And so if you are joining us maybe for the very first time today, which for us is a great thought, by the way, glad that you would be here if it is a first time for you, maybe first time in a long time. But if you are here today, first time, you are joining us as we are sharing together the amazing life and story of Elijah, one of the Old Testament's most remarkable characters. I guess really that's not even the way to say it, because actually what we really do here uh, on these mornings with Elijah is use him to help us learn more about our incredible, awesome God, right? He's just the catalyst. He's just the vehicle that helps us to learn more about our God so that we can love him and serve him more effectively. God is in this moment desiring to bring back uh, his people Israel to himself. They have gotten off track. It's a spiritually bankrupt, spiritually dark time for the nation of Israel, 850 B.C. or so. And Elijah factors into how God is wanting to bring his people back to him. And when we were with Elijah two weeks ago, since last week we took a break and celebrated Valentine's Day and all of that, when we left Elijah two mornings ago, we left him in a really dark place. We had been with him in chapter 18 of 1 Kings on the heights of Mount Carmel as God used him to orchestrate a showdown between himself and the false prophets of Baal, the, the false gods that Israel had chosen to allow into their lives. And, and uh, they were pursuing this false god under the urging of a really wicked king over Israel, by the, a king by the name of Ahab. Well, God wins the day, as we all know, on Mount Carmel with dramatic fire from heaven, chapter 18. And Elijah, on that day, in that moment, stands tall and strong for the Lord. I mean, he is a rock. On this day. But then, within 24 hours of that incredibly defining moment, something that we would not have expected to happen happens. We pick it up, verse 1, chapter 19. King Ahab, who was on the mountain and saw this dramatic thing that God had done, told Jezebel, she's the queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, you're a dead man. Verse three, then Elijah was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And let's pause there, church family, for just a second. In a matter of hours, we see Elijah plummet from the, the, the unbelievably powerful heights of Mount Carmel 
to the dark depths of a severe spiritual crisis of faith. I mean, he, he, he ran a hundred miles, we're told, south of Jezreel to Beersheba, clear out of Jezebel's territory, completely out of her reach. He abandons all companionship, we're told, at Beersheba, and then he runs another day beyond that into the Sinai Desert. He's already abandoned now his prophetic call. He's giving up. He quits. He quits on God. He quits on himself. He quits on, on the nation of Israel. And, and he's, he's done. He, he just says, I'm done. He's turned his back on everything and everyone. And so deep is the spiritual desert that he has wandered into that he even asks God to take him out, to kill him. He doesn't want to go on at all. Last time we were with Elijah, we explored some of the factors that contributed to this crisis of faith for the express purpose that we might avoid making this journey into the desert that he makes. Yet God is kind and God is tender towards Elijah, despite the fact that he really shouldn't even be here. He sends angels to care for him, refuses to abandon him, just like we sang in this song a moment ago, never once did you leave us on our own. And that is so beautifully expressed here. We're reminded of that, that that God does not leave us on our own, church family, even when we do stupid, right? Even when we we choose foolishly, even when we, we, we find that our faith is tanking, our God never leaves us on our own. He won't do that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he remains faithful even when we are faithless. Remember that? And then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He can't. He's bought us with his own son's blood. He can't do that. And he couldn't do that with his servant Elijah either. So we pick it up at verse 8. And he arose, Elijah arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went into the, in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Again, let's stop. Elijah runs now another 175 miles south of Beersheba to Mount Horeb. Now, you know this mountain, if you have been in the church for very long, and if you've hung out in God's Word, you know this mountain but you probably know it by a more familiar name, Mount Sinai. Uh, maybe Horeb doesn't catch your attention, but I'm sure Mount Sinai does. And at this particular time, again, about 850 B.C., there's no other spot on earth that would be more closely associated with the presence of God than this particular mountain. It was at the base of this mountain that God met Moses in the burning bush, if you might remember that story. It's here that the nation of Israel camps during uh, its great exodus journey out of Egypt into the promised land. They camp at the foot of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And this is the mountain that Moses will climb and meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments. So this is a really important place. It's the mountain of God, and it's where Elijah goes. It took Elijah 40 days to get here from where he was. Now, at the most, this journey should have taken him somewhere between 8 and 10 days on foot. For, so for 40 days, he, he, he wanders uh, in despair, in depression. Spiritually, he's bottomed out, but he eventually makes it to the mountain. Verse 9, 
There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) What are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, you're not supposed to be here at all. What are you doing here? Now, the Lord doesn't say the following, but he certainly could have said this to Elijah in this moment. Elijah, you should be in Jezreel right now, ready to lead my people, ready to anoint a new king. I have been moving for a long time particular pieces into place so that there could be a a spiritual turning of my people back to me. I called you into this prophetic office I gave you that responsibility. I brought that incredible drought that lasted three and a half years so that it would get my people's attention and they'd start crying out for help. And, and I, 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 I wiped out all of the prophets to Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. I, I wiped out those priests and prophets. And, and then I discredited the king, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel, the queen. You were perfectly positioned, Elijah, to take the reins and to lead the people spiritually and anoint a new king. You're not where you're supposed to be. You've run, and you've not only run, you've thrown in the towel of your office, and you're asking to die. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, the church family, this cave does not have a name. So I have taken the liberty of giving it a name. And I hope that's okay. I'm not sure what happens if it's not okay. But it's what I have done. On your note page, I've called it a cave named self-focus. A cave called self-focus. In this dark cave, alone, wrung out, feeling discouraged and defeated, all of Elijah's thoughts just come centering on him. And we see that in verse 10. He said, in response to God's question, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I even, I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Who's at the center of Elijah's world? Man, it is, he's just totally focused on himself. Now, church family... Here's one of those moments when it would have been so much better when God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah, if he had just said nothing? You ever have moments like that? Oh, man, I have lots of moments like that where upon reflection you wish you had just kept your mouth closed, right? This would have been one of those times for Elijah. He attempts to justify before God why he has run 300 miles into the desert at the most critical time when his presence in Israel was needed. He employs three well-worn but always unsuccessful approaches uh, to defending himself, approaches which, by the way, we are not unfamiliar with ourselves when we wander into this same cave called self-focus. Notice with me, first of all, in verse 10, that he reminds the Lord of his own past accomplishments. That's the first thing he does. He figuratively goes to his closet and he rummages around for his old scrapbook of past great service for God moments. 
got that right on the front of the cover of his, of his scrapbook. He blows off the dust. He begins to go through the pages with the yellowing photographs. And, and he reminds God of all the things that he has done, all the things that God already knows, right? I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Well, that was true. That was true. The, the Lord knows that. But the truth is that it was God who, in fact, gave Elijah the power to be zealous and to serve him in the first place. And so God's not impressed by this little trip down memory lane. But, you know, we do the same thing, too. We fall into the trap of resting on past accomplishments. Now, I will say this. One day, Elijah's past and our past service for our God all of that is going to be rewarded. It's going to be remembered by God. Scriptures tell us, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that our service for the Lord is going to be remembered by him and it will be rewarded. There is a time for that. The scriptures promise that. But our God is the God of right now. He doesn't hang out back there in the past with, with all of our great stuff, does he? He's the God of right now, not the God of yesterday. Agreed? And he's expecting things to happen right now with his servant Elijah. But this is where a tired and self-absorbed focus takes us. It takes us into our past where we, we hang out. And then when Elijah was done reminding God of how zealous he has been in the past, he then shifts his focus and he blames others for his fear-filled retreat from Jezebel. The people of Israel forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. In other words, he blames others for where he's at in this, this moment. Well, that's a foolish thing to do, isn't it? Because God will never accept the failure or the shortcomings of another person for our own sinful actions. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, absolutely. Remember how, how Adam, the, the first man, tried to blame his wife Eve for his own selfish disobedience? Remember this? The woman you gave me, God, she led me astray. And while I'm thinking about it, you gave her to me. So it's her fault and it's your fault that I'm where I'm at in this moment. And, you know, God will have none of that. He does not let us go there. We are all accountable for our own actions before a holy God, and the blame game has no place with him. How much better if Elijah would have, have prayed as Isaiah did before God, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. I have unclean lips. But in the cave of self-focus, no, that's not going to happen. And then the third approach he takes is marked by assuming things that aren't true. Assuming that you know more than you really know. Do we ever do that? Yeah, we do. Elijah believes here in this cave that he's the only God-honoring man in all of Israel. Do you notice this? I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He assumes he's the only one still loyal to Yahweh Elohim. He apparently uses this assumption to justify why he runs. If he dies, he says to God, there's no one else left. And boy, you're going to be in a pickle then. Right? That's exactly what he says. You can't make it without me. That's really shallow thinking, isn't it? But when you are so self-absorbed, all you have is shallow. 
We can't go deep. We can't be daring. We can't be trusting because all we can see is ourselves, and that's a real shallow pond. I'm wondering if God smiled when Elijah said this last line and said, you're in a tight spot if, I'm, if I die. I just wonder if God smiled and says, yeah, right, Elijah. If you die, I'm, I don't have any other options. I don't think so. Wow. But the amazing thing is that, that God is so patient with us in these places. And he allows us to share in what he is doing in spite of ourselves, right? What a gracious God, a God who pours out unmerited favor and lets us partner with him. Isaiah 14, 27 says, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? If God wants to do something, he's going to do it, right? With or without us. What's ironic in Elijah's self-focused thinking here in the cave is that he is so concerned about the one godly man still alive himself that he might as well be dead in this cave because he's of no help to anyone, right? So he's the only guy left, but he's no help to Israel. He's a non-factor. And here's the real truth uh, that he, uh, he doesn't know about. He just assumes he's the only guy. There are actually 7,000 lovers of Yahweh still living in Israel. We're going to read about them in just a second. But Elijah thinks, I'm the only guy. And God says, no, I got 7,000 more. If you get taken out, any one of them can take your place. There is no indispensable man, right? Nobody. Woman, man, nobody. God, God's purposes aren't going to be thwarted. So how different this moment would feel if when God asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? He had with humility simply said, oh, my Lord and my God. I was tired. I was lonely. I dropped my guard concerning the schemes of, of Satan. And I fell into his trap. And I took my eyes off of you in faith. And, and, and the vacuum created by that was filled with fear from Queen Jezebel's threat. And, and, and I can, could only think about myself. And so here I am. But I'm really sorry this is where I am at. And, and, and what would you have me to do? Wouldn't that be a great response? But this is the cave of self-focus. And that prayer doesn't happen here in this moment. If you flip your note page over, let's pick it up at verse 11. See what else happens next. And God said, after Elijah lays out his excuse, he says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, second time what are you doing here Elijah he said I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away wow really after that display 
in spite of what has just happened outside of his cave, Elijah does not move an inch. He is still stuck in the cave of self-focus. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now let's hold up right there. <laughs> and let's figure out what God has just done. Because this fourfold dramatic presentation of awesome power and gentle whispering is actually God's reply to Elijah's self-absorbed answer to his question, to God's question back in verse 10, what are you doing here, Elijah? Almost entirely without words, God has his own answer for Elijah's excuses. Using nature, he's going to tell Elijah a parable, a frightening, natural parable designed to help him get out of this cave. With the unprecedented fury of nature's power, as well as a quiet whisper, God responds to his fumbling, confused, self-focused prophet. First, God commands that there would be a sudden, extremely violent wind that would come ripping down through the mountain peaks and tear through the, the canyon walls and huge boulders are being catapulted and hillsides are being stripped of their vegetation, torn apart. The energy of a hundred tornadoes, if you can imagine that. And so dust and debris is just rifling past the entrance to Elijah's cave. And then comes a, a rending of the earth and the surface heaves and, the, and it rolls and it cracks under the strain of a great earthquake. And, and, and church family, I cannot think of a place I would rather not be than in a cave in an earthquake orchestrated by God, right? I mean, that's, you just don't want to be there, but that's where he's at. The mountains are leveled. New mountains are rising up. But the Lord's not in that earthquake. And then a firestorm engulfs the desert mountains with scorching heat. Living plants and animals, they, they do not escape this inferno. It burns everything. And all that's left when the, the flames pass is a blackened earth and smoke is dripping into Elijah's cave. And then... A breeze, a soft, gentle whisper of wind, perhaps, almost un undiscernible, like the soft echoes of a flute being played miles away, and the wind is carrying the notes over the hills and into your, into your ears so gently. And it was in that moment of unequaled quiet that fear grips the soul of Elijah. Not the mega tornado, not this earthquake, not this firestorm, but this gentle whisper. And he wraps his face in his cloak. Why? Because God's in it. 
Conspicuously absent is the, is, is the phrase, but the Lord was not in it. The Lord was not in those other three, but that phrase isn't made here with this, this, this whispering voice. He hides his face in his mantle, he, and he, he stands at the mouth of the cave because God has just spoken. Now, as a Bible student, what do you and I do with all of this? What's the meaning of this terrifying natural parable that, that God has just told? What's he saying, and how does what he says fit with where Elijah is in this moment in the cave? I'll, I'll tell you, church family, that there, there are no shortage of suggestions by really qualified scholars and Bible teachers for how we should understand this amazing scene, how we should interpret these four elements. Some of the suggestions are interesting, and, and some are compelling, some are, are, I believe, forced. They feel forced to me. And, and some are just downright confusing. I don't, I don't get it. But I think we can find the answer to what's going on here if we use the Bible student's best and most reliable interpretive tool. And church family, what is that tool? It's the Bible itself, right? That's the Bible itself. If you'd have said anything else, Idlewild Bible Church, I would have really been <laughs> disappointed. When we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, we avoid speculation and seeing things that aren't really there, right? One of my favorite stories, this is just a, a humorous aside, but it'll make a point. Uh, let me illustrate this with, with uh, I love this story. An engineer, a psychologist, and a preacher were out hunting in the wilds of northern Canada. Uh, it was something that they did every year, and so it's rainy and it's cold, and they come across an old cabin way back in the wilderness. It's an old trapper's cabin. And since hospitality is kind of the unwritten code of the backwoods, they stopped in hopes of, of, of maybe uh, drying out and doing that over a, a warm cup of coffee with the trapper who had this cabin. So they knock on the door, but nobody answers. Discovering that the door is unlocked, they go inside. And when they get inside, it's a simple two-room cabin, handmade furniture, minimum comforts. Nothing was surprising in the cabin except the stove that was in the center of the room. It was a large, black, cast-iron, pot-bellied stove. What made it odd was its location. It's suspended in the air about three feet off of the floor, hanging in midair, by four wires that are coming down from the roof beams, and a wire is attached to each of the four legs. And so it's hanging in the middle of the room. Can you picture this in your, in your mind's eye? Yeah? Got it? Fascinating, says the psychologist. It is obvious that this lonely trapper, isolated from humanity, has elevated the stove so that he can, can curl up underneath it and vicariously experience a return to the womb. Nonsense, says the engineer. This man is practicing the laws of thermodynamics. By elevating the stove, he maximizes its heat output. With all due respect, interrupts the preacher, I'm sure that his hanging stove from the ceiling has religious implications. Fire lifted up on high has been a religious symbol of God for centuries. He is clearly a God worshiper. Well, the three debate back and forth until the trapper finally returns. After introductions, each offers his idea for the hanging stove to the trapper who just listens quietly, doesn't say anything. 
So why have you hung the stove from the ceiling like that? We really want to know. The trapper looked at each one of them and he's stroking his beard. And he just says matter-of-factly, had plenty of wire, not much stovepipe. I love that story. You know, sometimes we can be like those three hunters with God's word, right? Looking for deep, profound, spiritual answers to a passage, all the while the first and best answers right there on the page. Now back up in verse 10, Elijah is of the opinion that it's all over for Israel. Your people Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. Elijah is done with Israel, uh, and that's why he's here in the desert. And apparently he assumes that God is done with Israel too. I, even I, only am left, and they want to take my life also. He's done. And then God responds with this four-part parable of wind, earthquake, fire, and a whisper. God asked him at the end of verse 13, once again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah, failing to comprehend what God is trying to get at by his awesome display of these four things, repeats his conviction, voiced back in verse 10, says it word for word in verse 14. (laughs) I'm done. Well, Elijah got it partly right. God was through. He was done, but not with Israel. He's done with Elijah, right? He's done with Elijah's self-imposed, self-focused, pity-party-throwing isolation in this cave. He's done with that. He's through with him giving up on Israel and on his own call from God to be a prophet, to be a servant to, to God's people. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go. Go. Get out of here. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Go, Elijah, you're done. I have things for you to do, and they're not going to get done as long as you stay in this cave. And then God interprets his own parable from nature for Elijah in verses 15 to 18. Those four elements, the wind, the earthquake, the fire, the whisper, they correspond perfectly to the four characters that God introduces in 15 to 18. Do you think that's an accident? Do you think that's just a a, a coincidence? No, that's not. Elijah is, is to get off this mountain. He's to head, first of all, for Syria to anoint a man by the name of, what's his name again? It's Hazael, yes. He's to anoint him as the new king of Syria. Now, why? Why? Because God is going to use Hazael and the nation of Syria as a rod of severe discipline against Israel to get her attention turned back on him. By the time that Hazael is done with Israel, they are going to be crying out to God for help. In 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 12, this anointing takes place, and God's prophet weeps as he anoints Hazael. Hazael will ask the prophet, Why are you crying on such a joyous occasion? And listen to what the prophet says. Because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. Their little ones you will dash in pieces. And their women with child you will rip up. That's why I'm crying. 
Because that's, Haziel, what you're going to do. In the, the brutal accounts that follow in Second Kings and in Chronicles, it happens just this way. And so Haziel is like a tornado who sweeps through Israel. And he's the storm of destruction, tearing the land and tearing the people apart. And so God is the author of this terror, just like he's the author of the wind outside of Elijah's cave. And it's God's answer to Elijah about Israel and her backslidden condition. God says, I'm not done with her. I'm going to use Hazael to get her attention back on me. And then Elijah is to anoint who? Secondly, Jehu as the king in Israel. Jehu will turn out to be God's instrument of judgment on King Ahab and Jezebel. He will be like an earthquake that just shakes the house of of Ahab from top to bottom. He's going to take the throne away from Ahab's house. How's he going to do that? He's going to do that by murder. And and then he's going to, after that, he's he's going to have Jezebel thrown out of her palace window. It will kill her. She's going to be eaten by wild dogs. He's going to kill 70 of Ahab's descendants in one day and publicly put their heads on display. There will be no one left to take the throne for Ahab. And most importantly, it is Jehu that God uses to extinguish Baal worship in Israel forever. Erases the sign of Baal. He's going to level every Baal temple, destroy every idol to that false god. And so Jehu is the earthquake. And he's God's answer to Elijah and his complaint concerning those false gods and Ahab and Jezebel. And then Elijah is to anoint who? Elisha as the one to replace himself as the main prophetic voice in Israel. This silences Elijah's self-focused complaint that he's the only prophet left, right? Well, no, you're not. Elisha will be like a fire, Elijah. He's going to be like a fire in Israel, proclaiming the word of God and doing even greater exploits than you have done. His impact on the nation is going to bring greater spiritual change to Israel than anything that Elijah has been a part of. He's going to be like a refining fire before unbelieving Israel and turn many back to the Lord. And then in verse 18, there is this matter of the 7,000 who know and love God, how in Israel right now? Secretly, right? Secretly. In the midst of the wickedness of those times, God says, oh, by the way, Elijah, 7,000 Israelites have not participated in the worship of Baal, nor have they kissed his image as their God. They are the silent, quiet, faithful They are the whisper, aren't they, in God's parable. They're the whisper. Now, we're never told what the whispered words outside of Elijah's cave were. But I wonder, I just wonder if God was not simply saying in a whisper for Elijah's benefit, That was meant to give Elijah hope, to give him some encouragement. It was not as black in Israel as Elijah assumed. There were 7,000. 
The Lord loves Elijah, never abandons him. He has met him in his cave, brought light and truth into his darkness, given him a hint of what is coming in the future. And now, since Elijah had, in the midst of his faith crisis, decommissioned himself as prophet and said, I'm done, God graciously, but also very strongly, recommissions him right here. Go, go, I'm not done with you. I didn't decommission you. Go, you're still my prophet. Return on your way. You're not supposed to be here, Elijah. Go. Go. Two letters. Such a short little word. And yet, one of the most important words that God ever speaks to his people. Would you agree? Go. Whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the New Testament, whether it's in our time today, That's the word. Go. Go. Go and be about my work. Elijah, get off this mountain. Return to the world that you tried to run away from. Go back. Go back and get busy with the work I called you to. And brothers and sisters, it is in this act of going, obeying and going, that Elijah's faith returns. And his focus shifts from self to God and from God to others, to his nation. That's very interesting, isn't it? It is in the act of going that he recovers his faith, gets back on track with what he's supposed to do. If there's just one major takeaway that Elijah gains from this time in the desert, perhaps it would be this one, as you see it there near the bottom of your note page. Maybe this would be his takeaway. My life will never know fulfillment by turning inward, but only by turning what? Godward and then outward. That's the only way my life is going to know fulfillment and purpose. Man, if that's the lesson that Elijah takes from this, what a great, great time this has been for him. If any one of us is perhaps feeling today spiritually stuck, Maybe like Elijah. No joy, no direction, no peace, no sense of purpose. Perhaps it is because we, like him, are stuck in this cave called self-focus. You know, we live in a culture that all too often says, make it about you. Make it about you. It's all about you. It's about your fulfillment. It's about your happiness. It's about your well-being. Make it about you. But church family, what is that? That is a lie right out of the pit, isn't it? Because it's not about us. Who is it all about? It's all about him, isn't it? It's all about our great and awesome God. And the best way that we make it all about him is by going and doing what he's asked us to do. Whatever that is, go. Why are you here? The answer is in I shouldn't be here. I need to go. I need to go. Serve you, Lord, and serve others. Great takeaway. Verse 19. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the prophet of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? 
And he returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the wooden yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Maybe your version says ministered to him. I like the concluding words of this chapter, don't you? And assisted him. You know, when Elijah ran into the wastelands of the desert, we were told back in verse 3 that he left his servant behind. He, he, just, he just went alone, self-isolation. He settles in this cave, and all he can think about is himself. He's alone. God knew this was not good for him. And so the first thing that God does when Elijah leaves the cave is give him the gift of Elisha. Elisha will be Elijah's ministry companion for the rest of his days. They will never be apart, never be separated. God never intended, brother and sister, that you and I do this thing called the Christian life all by ourselves. There is no such thing in Scripture as the Christian Lone Ranger, right? And even the Lone Ranger had who? Tonto, right? (laughs) Right. He gave us each other so that together we might do the work that he has called us to do. We wouldn't hang out in the cave of self-focus. We would go, right? We would go and do what God has called us to do. What a great takeaway for us today. My life will never know fulfillment by turning inward, but only by turning Godward and then outward. May it be so for the family of IBC. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for another snapshot out of the life of Elijah. And we thank you for being so faithful uh, to include not only the bright, shining moments of his life, but also the dark, uh, desperate places of his life as well, because we learn so much from those also. We thank you today for the challenges that come to us from your word, and we certainly don't want to walk his steps into the desert and into that cave, but it's possible that even in this room right now that some of our friends, maybe one even, has has wandered into that place. And Lord, I would just pray fervently to you right now and ask that you might grant release, that you would enable any who might be in such a dark place to hear the words, go and get on with it. Get on with the business of loving you and loving others well. Thank you for that. For my friends here who are not in such a cave of self-focus but are, are deeply in love with you, may you bless them and fulfill them as they take up whatever it is that you have given for them to do. May they be faithful to that charge, Lord, and may you get great glory from it. Glorify yourself through Idlewild Bible. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' great name.